Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Paper, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. On today's show, how optical navigation can help a bomb find its target by bypassing the need for GPS. The difficult bit is digitizing the scenery and then extracting meaningful features from that. Our researchers at MIT are investigating super slippery surfaces, meaning the contents of tubes and containers can flow more easily. The best way of making this work is the, if you like, the lubricated part that's embedded in the surface is actually made from one of the ingredients of the substance that will be in the container. And how scanning every container that passes through a port has become an issue of computational power, not manpower. The power of artificial intelligence is that instead of needing humans to do the inspecting, you can have computers do the inspecting, and computers are a lot easier to have a lot more of. So to start... As satellite navigation gets ever more pervasive, we become increasingly reliant on it. Lose the GPS signal, and you may have literally no idea where you are or which way to go. This is even more of an issue for the military, spurring them to develop alternative navigation systems based on cameras. I'm joined by The Economist technology writer David Hambling. Hello, David. Hello. David, so first, what is the optical technology that we're talking about? Uh, This is basically having machines that navigate in exactly the same way as humans do. So it looks around, it sees some landmarks, it compares those with what it has in its memory, and it can then figure out where it is from that. Okay, and so how does the system work? The difficult bit is digitizing the scenery and then extracting meaningful features from that. Because a human can very easily say, ah, right, I recognize that road junction with the two buildings and the church. But for a computer which has no idea what a a road junction or a building or a church is, it's very much more challenging. So the difficult bit has been developing algorithms and learning techniques to recognize objects and pick out the key features of a scene. Now, many of us will remember the vision of the Google self-driving car and it showing what the car sees and what the human being would see if they were in the driver's seat. Is it a little bit like that? Google tend to rely on laser-based navigation. This is because laser sensors are much simpler. They can build up a 3D model of the surroundings very easily. Visual navigation is a lot trickier because you've got to do things like judging distances and sizes, and things may look completely different depending on what angle you see them at. So things like sonar, radar, lidar tend to be favoured for ground robots. So why is the military using this optical technology based on images? There are other issues with radar. It tends to be uh, big and heavy and expensive, and it's fine for a car looking at objects a few metres away. It's much harder for a uh, missile moving rapidly with uh, things further away. So that gets me to the idea of what the military plans to use the technology for. 
The military's big problem is that they are even more reliant on GPS than everyone else, and the vast majority of the smart bombs that are dropped these days are satellite-guided, they use GPS. So if anyone jams GPS, suddenly you find that all your smart bombs don't work anymore. So the idea has very much been to develop an alternative approach based on optical navigation for situations where GPS is jammed. So it's simply an alternative to the GPS? Yes, exactly. Are there any other uses other than helping bomb people? It can be used for any situation where you need to navigate. Other people are looking at this particularly for things like urban navigation and indoors navigation. GPS is great outdoors when you've got a clear view of the sky, but particularly uh, in city areas, in what they call urban canyons, you may find that it either doesn't work at all or even worse, it tends to place you several hundred metres away from your actual location. You may have seen this thing when you're using sat-nav, that your position suddenly jumps 100 metres or so, uh, which is caused by reflected GPS signals. In that sort of situation, an optical navigation system, which actually likes having lots of big buildings around to recognise, might turn out to be much more accurate. And so when do we expect to see this technology get deployed? Well, the Israelis are the first off the um, blocks with this one, and uh, they have a guided bomb called SPICE, which is expected to be in service this year. US Air Force are slightly behind them, and they're looking at having something out in 2018. It looks like we have to, yet again, go back to earlier techniques to solve some of our modern problems rather than rely on the future. It fits into that pattern, doesn't it? Yes, it's exactly that. And it's it's also fitting into this process by which the computers are getting smarter and they're now able to do things like recognising objects that only people were able to do before. And you can do that with uh, very cheap technology, with smartphone technology now. That's right. So it's basically a machine learning Yep, it's machine learning, cheap cameras, cheap processing, and advanced machine learning uh, means it opens up all sorts of new capabilities. It's really interesting. Well, thank you very much, David. Thank you. If you have any comments about bombs I can see, please share them on social media or send them to us by email to radio at economist.com and be a part of the conversation. Now, good news for anyone who has thumped a bottle of ketchup to get out the last dollop or flattened and rolled up a tube of toothpaste to eject the final squirt. For the past decade, a group of researchers at MIT have been studying super slippery surfaces that can make a container's contents flow more easily. I'm joined by The Economist's innovation editor, Paul Markley. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ken. What is the problem with existing containers? Well, if you tried to get that last bit of ketchup out or the last bit of salad cream or even get a glue pot and it's all gummed up and you know there's some in there but you can't get it out. But what is the problem? I, I know there's something called surface tension. I know there's inertia. Yeah, well, um, certain liquids are very gooey and they stick to the sides of things. Um, and um, this group led by uh, Kripa Varanasi at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, they've been working on various surface coatings for a while. They're their immediate uh, job in hand, if you like, is is copying uh, the way a lotus leaf works, which if a, a droplet of water falls on the leaf, you know, it balls up and it's expelled straight away. Now, that's due to a lotus leaf having a surface that is super hydrophobic, i.e. it repels water. And that's to do with its structure, a tiny microscopic structure that traps bits of air. Works for water droplets, which have a high surface tension but not for other stuff like gooey toothpaste or glue or 
paint or things like that. So to get around that, they've been filling those little air gaps in with, if you like, oils, special materials. And that makes a super slippery surface. It's kind of self-lubricating surface. And they make that oiling material from the ingredients of the substance in the container. So that means if you have a bottle of ketchup, for instance, and normally there's a good bit left in it, you can turn it upside down. It will all slide out. That sounds so incredible. So what are they going to do with this technology? Well, they set up a startup company, which they're talking to consumer goods companies, to to have this put into bottles, cartons, and tubs of things in the future so we could um, all save what must amount to huge lakes of wasted products simply because people can't get it out, if you like. But they've taken this further now with new research because they've found that if they selectively heat areas of these new services they can actually steer the molecules of substance or liquid or water. They can steer it around. They may go left, right or whatever by selectively heating and cooling different bits of the surface. And why would we want to do that? Well, lots of possibilities there. One is you could steer fluids across otherwise flat surfaces without pipes or valves. So if you are making these things called labs on a chip, which analyse blood, they use tiny tubes and valves. Well, instead you could have a flat one and steer the fluid across it. Or you might use it in the condenser in a steam turbine, which is an area this group we've been looking at to increase the efficiency, the shedding of water. And that would uh, greatly improve the efficiency of electricity generation. And another possibility is in space, because in space, because we don't have gr- there is no gravity for liquids and fluids to fall in one direction. So if you can steer them with this technology, these super slippery surfaces have a long way to go. Now, if they're going to use it for things like paint, I'm all for it. If they're going to put it into my toothpaste and it's toxic, I'm not. I'm sure you've asked this question about the toxicity of the technique. Well, that's something they've addressed straight away because the best way of making this work is the, if you like, the lubricated part that's embedded in the surface is actually made from one of the ingredients of the substance that will be in the container. So if it's a food, it could be a natural oil that's present in the food, or if it's paint, it could be part of the whatever the paint is made from. So you don't want that cross-contamination. And of course, what works for consumers would also be a boom in the factories as well, because all these a lot of factories, especially in batch manufacturing, have to shut everything down and clean it all out when they start switching from making, say, red paint to blue paint. Now they could save, well, by some estimates, probably 30% of their production run, which previously might well have gone to waste. Thanks, Paul. Last week we discussed exoplanets and the practicalities of actually finding them. Sam von Rood is CEO of CareScudo in London, and he writes, quote, I was surprised you didn't mention Stephen Hawking, a Russian billionaire, and Mark Zuckerberg, who want to send tiny spaceships to Alpha Centauri. So potentially we could discover entire new planets to colonize in the distant future, or not so distant, considering SpaceX planned to have a regular commuter trip to Mars in the next 20 years. And to do that, they need Earth-like exoplanets to explore. So a great value for money, in my humble opinion. But one man's exploration for an exoplanet is another man's frivolous waste of money. Sky Moore is a partner with Strock and Strock and Lavin in Los Angeles. Sky wrote, I'm fed up with hearing about all the useless space exploration, including for exoplanets, when people on our own planet have diseases such as multiple sclerosis and don't have a cure due to a lack of research funding. We should take care of problems on Earth before wasting more money in outer space. 
Don't forget, you can join the conversation by contributing to our Facebook page or interact with us on Twitter at Economist Radio. Now picture the scene, a huge port somewhere in the world with hundreds of thousands of items passing through every day. Keeping the containers moving and secure at the same time is a huge challenge. Current security systems rely on manual inspection of scan imagery, followed by physical inspection of items that arouse suspicion. But human attention is limited and an expensive resource. Now, a group of computer scientists at University College London have a new approach. I'm joined by Hal Hodson, The Economist technology writer. Hello, Hal. Hi there, Ken. Hey, so first, what is happening? Machines are getting to grips with tasks that are too complex for humans. This is a a niche example of a task like this, but it's a good one. The scans that these big X-ray machines produce are so large that human beings can't really inspect them thoroughly in any kind of reasonable amount of time. Let me stop you here. They're large in what way? In dimension. So when you go to the airport with your carry-on luggage and you see the screen that the human is looking at with your bag going through it, they're looking at a little box with things that they know what's going to be in there. Whereas when you scan a shipping container, the image is huge and it's packed with stuff. It's the size of, you know, one of those tiny London studio apartments. Can I ask a really stupid question? You say that it's an X-ray, but containers are metallic Mm. and X-rays don't pass through metal. They do if they're very, very high power. And so the scanners gather up these images, and the normal way of doing it is to have a human sit there and try and find dangerous things. The security industry calls them small metallic threats, but basically they mean weapons. And because the volumes of trade going through European ports and all the ports in the world is so large, it means that you can only choose a tiny fraction of those containers for real inspection. The power of artificial intelligence is that instead of needing humans to do the inspecting, you can have computers do the inspecting, and computers are a lot easier to have a lot more of. So you're basically having the computer and be able to read the imagery, identify what's there, and look for threats. That's right. Sounds like it's a great technique. How does it work? There's a trick. The scans that they got to feed into the artificial intelligence learning software came from a company called Rapiscan. It's an American company that makes these big x-ray scanners. But naturally, they don't have a lot of examples of weapons in the scans. So what the UCL researchers did is get another data set of x-rayed weapons and insert them themselves into the data set provided from Rapiscan. And that creates this synthetic data, which allows them to train the model, showing it examples where here's a pair of you know garden shears hidden behind a bicycle, here's a gun hidden in a pile of clothes. How won't this only work if the threat itself is synthetic? It won't because for kind of nuanced reasons. So machine learning relies on data to learn about the world. However, when the researchers place things, project those uh, that extra data set into this, this Rapiscan data, humans know how to hide things. And so when the machine looks at their examples, there's really no reason that their hiding of things in the data synthetically is worse or less realistic than, you know, the way a terrorist might hide a bunch of guns. So the machine can learn from them how things are hidden just as well as it can learn from a terrorist. What is the cost? The cost is pretty much just computation. This is the big attraction. If you want to employ more human beings to inspect more containers, that's expensive and takes a long time. 
with this, you just plug in more computers. And they, they haven't deployed it yet. So we don't know the real running cost in real environments, but they're planning to deploy it in RapidScan's real x-ray systems in the next quarter. The idea is not necessarily that all human inspection goes away, especially in airport security. Systems like this would be more likely to sit in the background checking the checks of the humans, kind of like a digital safety belt, making sure that we don't miss anything because they're just better at looking at large volumes of stuff. Thanks a lot, Hal. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. To read the articles by David, Paul, and Hal, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist and Printer Online. Any thoughts, comments, or questions about this week's issue, please write to us on Twitter at Economist Radio or on our Facebook page. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.